Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 148, Work, Sex, Money, Dharma. We continue our conversation with teacher Martin Alward on the specific forms that he's adopting to help bring forth a more relevant, relational, and potent form of contemporary Dharma practice. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Recently, we spoke to Rodney Smith. He's the guiding uh-huh. teacher of the Seattle Insight Group. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I know him well. Okay, great. And he's also focusing on something like freestyle Buddhism, or he, he's calling it urban dharma. But, mm. um, we talked to him a little bit about how that view, that approach, that retreat life and life life are not separate, that they're all part and parcel of what we do. How that view has really changed the mechanics or the forms of how their community operates. And I know on the one hand, we're trying to maintain this kind of paradox really of letting the forms arise and being open to intuition and and just like you're talking this freestyle mentality. But on the other hand, it seems like there've been some real changes to the form of how you specifically teach and how Rodney teaches when you have that view. And I was wondering if we could maybe explore some of that piece. Uh, You talked a little bit about already about the relational quality of some of your retreats where people get a chance to talk. Could you say more about some of the specific ways that you've noticed the forms changing with that attitude? Sure. And at first, I think it's important to say, you know, that there's something profound and wonderful and vital about the kind of retreat model. It's not, I don't want to uh, in any way suggest a kind of dismissal of that for something that's kind of freer and wilder and uh, something else. And I think it's entirely appropriate, actually, that, you know, at least within the Vipassana tradition, there's been a whole generation where that was the main focus, establishing centers and ways of teaching and a whole bunch of skillful means around retreats that people have the opportunity in kind of intensive silent retreat practice to really get a taste for the depths of meditation. But then we easily get kind of fixated. I'm shocked sometimes to see how much uh, Vipassana students are fixated on retreats as where their real practice is. And then the middle bit of kind of the rest of your life becomes a kind of limping along with ever-decreasing amounts of awareness until you can kind of go back and plug in to retreat again. We get very good instructions on a meditation retreat but you might be there for a week or 10 days and get very excellent precise instructions for how to work with your mind in a whole different varieties of ways that it shows up and then at the end of the retreat you might get one single instruction for the whole of the rest of your life which is go forth and be mindful basically Mm -hmm. which is good advice but it's not sophisticated enough for the rest of life so in a more engaged relational practice i Myself, working with people, I've found there to be three main ways to support awareness in daily life. Again, firstly, the problem is 
when silent retreats are your reference for what it's like to be mindful or to be aware, you're kind of referencing that within the very rarefied and refined conditions of a retreat where there's very little external stimulation, where quite naturally body settles and mind settles. There's a, a degree of clarity and steadiness to the mind which may not be available or which will not be available all the time in daily life. So if you're measuring yourself against that, you're kind of bound to find yourself lacking in capacity a lot, which is really a shame. So the three things are firstly just body-based awareness, coming back to sensing your body, to knowing what's actually happening in your field of awareness, in the kind of sphere of your own presence moment by moment. The kind of energetic contractions, the emotional life, the way you're kind of invested in or kind of leaning into or resisting and moving away from what's happening. What I sometimes call the three Ds of, uh, now I can't remember them, (laughs) (laughs) demands, distraction or defenses. And it kind of corresponds to greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, either they're making demands on life in that kind of greedy, compulsive way, or defending against what's happening, a kind of hatred or rejection of that, or distraction, a kind of turning around in a kind of confused, unfocused way. So just really using your body as a kind of antenna, as the organ of consciousness. Because that's where you get to recognize the most immediate, visceral impact of your moment-to-moment experience. The second aspect of working with people is often with their own tendency to doubt themselves, criticize themselves, undermine themselves, and measure their practice in a really unhelpful way. You know, we tend to measure our meditation in terms of the quality of the meditation practice. And... Again, it's easy to find that kind of lacking in terms of our memories of retreat and of maybe deeper meditation. But actually something quite mysterious happens around just the willingness to meditate. I often say to people the most important moment of meditation is the moment you actually commit to doing it. The fact that you orientate towards awareness, that you sit yourself down. And it's very interesting that you might sit yourself down every day and have restless mind states, dull mind states, distracted mind states, and that you look out back over a few months of distraction, restlessness, and sleepiness, and you find, wow, something's changed. Somehow there's more spaciousness, more uh, capacity to, to abide with what's happening than there was earlier on. So the measure of meditation is not in the quality of the meditation as you just experienced it in that half hour sitting. The only real measure of it is in the changing degree of of spaciousness and sensitivity and care and the way our minds transform in that way. And so just, you know, part of that is just really supporting people in kind of acknowledging the value of their practice, the goodness of their heart, their willingness to really undertake a practice of freedom and awakening, even if, and in fact, especially if, much of the time it feels like hard work. There's a lot of goodness in that willingness to do that. And the third aspect then is supporting people's kind of um, what happens emotionally 
when you're practicing in a relational field, when you're practicing freedom and awakening in contact with people, intimate relationships, working relationships, social relationships, and all that gets stirred up in that. What we find ourselves wanting from others, what we find ourselves afraid of in others, what we find ourselves judging in others or in ourselves and relating to others. And that's a whole piece where I think having a teacher to explore with and relate to and discuss that stuff with is really crucial in a way that's not really available in retreat because what's happening in retreat is different. It's not getting stirred up in the same way because you're not in a relational field in the same way as you are in your life. Mm. And that's actually where I found Skype to be so great because um, it means I can stay in touch with people between retreats in the midst of their lives, meeting them in the evening and exploring together mm. via Skype. Mm. So, yeah, one thing that you do is Skype-based individual and group calls. How does it work with a group? That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, well, uh, particularly with London Insight, we've been doing that for the last year or so. So we meet every three weeks or so. I think I'm either on a biggish screen or maybe projected on the wall in the house and they're, uh, <laughs> nice. they're kind of uh, sitting together in front of the screen. And uh, so I offer a guided meditation a little bit, some reflection for 20 minutes. That's the bit that's a little harder for me because they're kind of a kind of slightly pixelated amorphous bunch in front of the screen. Mm-hmm. So I can't quite tell how things are landing in the same way as if I was in the room. But okay. And then after some reflections, then people may have questions or things they want to explore from what I've said. And then the person will just come up and and sit in front of the the webcam. One of the things that's very beautiful in that, and this is particularly noticeable working one-to-one with people, is how, as we really listen to each other, and as you kind of tune in to the various cues and the changes in breath that you can hear, and the intimacy of that, you know, listening in headphones, you can often hear very, quite subtle changes in breathing and is how the sense of the shared field of presence can be every bit as tangible as if we're sitting, uh, you know, face to face in the middle of a retreat. Mm. And, you know, sometimes we're separated uh, like you and I are now by thousands of kilometers, you know, and different time zones and all the rest of it. And yet there's an immediacy and an inner interpenetration of the kind of fields of awareness there that's tangible and beautiful. You know, it's a teaching in itself about interconnection. Mm. So uh, as I, I think I wrote to you when we first spoke, it's like, you know, and thinks of Indra's net. And even in, in its sound, that's pretty similar to internet. Mm-hmm. And you know, the internet's like actually an extraordinary example of that kind of everything being interrelated and kind of mutually reflecting. Interesting. It's so interesting to hear a Dharma teacher share that kind of perspective on technology because so often I, even with the teachers I deeply love and appreciate, they just don't seem to get that. And uh, I think it's a generational thing most of the time, but I feel kind of like, oh man, they're, they're really not in touch with the beauty of that medium, which is changing so quickly and which is becoming, at least in my experience and, and how you're describing it, more dynamic and more interconnected and more uh, real in a way. So thank you for sharing that kind of perspective because I, I feel sometimes that it's, a, it's kind of dissed in the Dharma world a little bit. 
Yeah. Well, I think it is a generational thing. There's just that particular movement of mind as we get older that newer things seem kind of complicated. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, Dharma teachers don't seem to be exempt from that. As you get older, the stuff about how the internet somehow is stopping people having real conversations or something, you know, that kind of thing. I'm really interested, you know, there's a quote by Lao Tzu, who was an exact contemporary of the Buddha. So he living two and a half thousand years ago in rural China. Mm-hmm. And when he was an old man, he wrote, When I was younger, life moved more slowly. People had time for each other. Nowadays, everything moves so quickly, everything's so complicated, people don't have time for each other, etc., etc. And, you know, that's two and a half thousand years ago in China. So one has to ask, well, has life been constantly getting more and more crazy and complicated and people having less and less time for each other over those two and a half thousand years? Or is it that there's that tendency of mind as we get older to look back and idealise something from our own memory as being simpler and then kind of apply that to the outside world Hmm. and so that can happen in any generation and it can happen around anything you know it can happen around whatever was going on in Lao Tzu's world it can certainly happen around the internet seeming like oh that's sort of complicated all that's taking us away from ourselves rather than it just being uh, you know the latest tool just like a plow was the latest tool that made things really helpful for human beings Mm mm-hmm in Lao Tzu's time or the, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really interesting perspective. You know, one other f- interesting form that you are exploring and I wanted to ask you a little bit about is in London next year, you're doing a retreat where there's over the weekend an intensive period and then getting together with people in the evenings throughout the rest of the week. So that I guess they'd be going to their jobs and so on, but they'd still be involved in this retreat. That sounded really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited about that. It's called uh, Work, Sex, Money, Dharma. And the idea being to give people an opportunity to explore and have teachings and look at those areas of their life while being kind of embedded in their relational lives and their working lives, etc., rather than removing themselves and being in the kind of retreat environment where those things aren't getting stimulated so much. Yeah, we do. We have the two full days of the weekend to introduce sort of the material, if you like, and then Monday through Friday we'll meet in the evenings and see and what people are noticing about the impact of how they are around money, how they are around sexuality, how they are around the stuff of their life. And so there's the sort of support of the retreat container throughout those seven days, Mm. but they're also staying really engaged with their lives. So that's the first time I'll I'll do that, and I hope I'll learn as much from it as people who come will. Nice. And how are you inspired to try this out? Like, where did this come from? Well, I guess that's the freestyle awakening bit. It's, <laughs> I'll be making it up as I go along. Nice, nice. So this is kind of an original thought, like, let's try this and see what happens. I think the form of doing something, like something at a weekend and then through the evenings, Yeah. I don't think that's particularly new. I've heard it referred to as a sandwich retreat okay. or like both weekends and then people having some kind of continuity in evenings through the week. But... I guess what we want to do with that is that the material, the content of that retreat is very specifically focused on the bits that don't usually get so much attention. Right, right. You know, 
You know, I heard somebody uh, say recently, when I was giving a talk about sexuality, they said, oh, I've been doing retreats for 15 years. That's the first Dharma talk I've ever heard about sex. Hmm. And, you know, similarly with money. Yeah. We talk about money a little bit at the end when we're saying about dana, and then often that's cloaked in something about, oh, it's about generosity and the purity of the tradition. But basically we're saying, oh, please, you know, support us. Yeah. To take those two examples, sex and money, if they're not really being brought fully into awareness, something's going to get lost, Vince, because I don't know about you, but sex and money and how those things get a grip on my mind, you know, those things take up space. They yeah. really need some attention. No doubt. They take up a lot of RAM. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, just as you're describing it, I was just imagining what it would be like to bring in the content of my life from work and from my sexual life and from my financial life into a kind of retreat-esque environment. I was thinking, wow, that'd be weird. So, uh-huh. so, uh, so that says something, that it would seem like a weird thing it, it totally to bring does. the stuff that actually really occupies a lot of space yeah. and that actually really has a lot of charge around it and is actually the stuff where you get caught up a lot of the time and then we say oh well to bring that into my spiritual practice that would be strange jeez it's pretty strange not to it's, have a spiritual practice that's supposed to transform your life and yet won't bring that stuff in yeah it's just funny i felt like i've needed to look to other uh, other methods other philosophies other teachings to work with those and then kind of almost cobble those things together that they're not naturally interrelated. So yeah, it is really interesting that you're really trying to create a container that brings those things intimately together. That's cool. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I wish I were there in London. <laughs> yeah, I wish I were there in March to, to check it out. And can people find out about that at londoninsight.org? Yeah, I guess, I think we just registered actually worksexmoneydharma.org okay. and Rohan just gave me a little flip video camera to record a piece to put on that website. There's not so much stuff up about it yet, but okay. pretty soon if you Google worksexmoneydharma, I reckon, um, well, who knows what might come up, but you'll probably, <laughs> <laughs> but you'll probably find, be able to find out about it through there. And then just in closing, I wondered if you had anything else kind of around these topics that you felt like didn't get touched on and didn't get discussed that you wanted to bring up before we closed. I guess, you know, what's been most uh, helpful in my own practice, aside from the kind of um, the richness of meditation, has been to try and to really bring as much awareness as I could to what I've been calling a relational life, to what happens with these other kind of dreaded human beings <laughs> that we're in touch with. Because I noticed after some years of meditation and so much of my understanding and reactivity that seemed to have gotten really, really moved through and changed and transformed and let go of in certain ways. But there seemed to be just as much a bunch of patterns of how I would relate to others, and particularly those close to me, that the same kinds of reactive patterning were going on that hadn't really got changed. So I guess what I most want to say is let's not compartmentalize our practice in any way. You know, let's wake up to anything that we've put somehow outside of our practice. Anything that our practice doesn't include, that's where we need to look. That's what this kind of slightly provocative title of work, sex, money, dharma really means. It's about, you know, let's bring in all the stuff that we actually get caught and make that part of our living practice of freedom and awakening. Mm-hmm. 
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.